Hey guys, before we start the episode, I just want to warn you. Our featured guest this week is sex advice columnist, sex advice podcaster, and sex advice potty mouth Dan Savage. And even though we have bleeped out all the naughty words, please be aware that some of the content in this episode is adult in theme. I'm Rachel Bell, and this is Your Last Meal. Every episode, I interview a celebrity about what their last meal would be. And then we explore the history of that food, and we try and learn as much about that dish as we possibly can in a single half hour. This is the last podcast before the election, so I'm bringing in my best friend and my boyfriend to fight it out presidential debate style. They will debate a culinary topic so personal, I can almost guarantee that you have had this very same debate in your own kitchen. But don't worry. There's not going to be politics on this show. It's just that today's guest, Dan Savage, chose a dish that inspires controversy. And even though it's one of the most common foods in our country, 94% of you have this in your pantry, Americans are staunchly divided over which one is better. But more on that later. Today on Your Last Meal, Mr. Dan Savage. Dan writes Savage Love, an internationally syndicated relationship and sex advice column. He does a podcast called Savage Lovecast. Dan created the It Gets Better campaign with his husband, Terry, and he's an LGBTQ activist and media pundit. But 25 years ago, Dan Savage was working in a video store in Madison, Wisconsin. He goes to a party and he ends up meeting Tim Keck, who is the co-founder of The Onion. And Tim was telling Dan that he was getting ready to move to Seattle to open a new alternative weekly called The Stranger. And as he's telling Dan all this... Dan says, you have to have an advice column. Everybody reads the advice column. So Tim calls his bluff, tells Dan to write one, just an example, and the rest is history. The stranger turned 25 this year, and Dan is still writing that column, which started off really tongue-in-cheek. So your column started as a joke, but it's quite serious, really. I mean, a lot of people rely on your advice and take your advice. And I'm just curious, I mean, I don't know, you know, how you could ever train to be an advice columnist, but... How did you trust yourself to give advice? Like, where does it come from that you have the confidence to advise other people <laughs> on their lives? Well, you don't need any professional qualifications to give advice. If you look up advice in the dictionary, it says opinion about what could or should be done. And literally the only qualification you need to give uh, someone your advice is that they were foolish enough to ask you for it. <laughs> so I never was too self-conscious about how dare I uh, give advice. But the column wouldn't have taken off and wouldn't have lasted if people didn't respond to my advice and didn't think it had some merit. So I try not to think about it too hard, um, but obviously it works for other people and that it's been very gratifying over the years. You know, I have people, I've been doing this for so long, I have people come up to me sometimes in airports to thank me for saving their marriage or their parents' marriage or helping them have a really awesome sex life or figure out who they really are. And that's, that's really rewarding. Do you ever get tired of talking about sex? It's like, oh, sex again. <laughs> you know, sometimes, but the column only takes, uh, you know, a day or two out of my week uh, and the podcast another day. So I have four days a week when I'm not thinking or talking about sex. So I I'm OK. I have balance. Um, so this podcast is about food primarily. So I was curious kind of about the relationship with sex and food. I'd interviewed you a long time ago about Valentine's Day. And the thing that stuck out to me the most that I've always thought about is um, your f first uh, advice. Could you kind of talk about that? The idea of maybe when you should have the big dinner for a special occasion? <laughs> well, I just, uh, you know, that came to me after years of getting letters from people on February 15th, the day after Valentine's Day, complaining or wringing their hands or seriously worried uh, that their relationship was falling apart because they went out for a big romantic meal and they had wine and chocolate and then they went home and fell asleep and nobody initiated. And so that means they're not, you know, attracted to each other anymore. And they flunked Valentine's Day because they didn't f 
after having a giant meal that acts as a sedative with wine that acts as a sedative with chocolate or dessert that acts as a sedative. And my advice was, you know, maybe you should first and then go out to dinner, get the out of the way instead of going out and eating a bit. And who wants to on a huge meal? You just feel bloated and gross. You don't want to be poked or poke anybody at that point. You just want to watch TV. Uh, and so that became my first advice for Valentine's Day in the hopes of not getting all these letters on February 15th anymore. And it turned into first before your wedding, not on your wedding nights. You're going to be exhausted on your wedding night. Get it out of the way early in the day, maybe in the uh, changing room at the church before you march down the aisle. So you have that glow. And the particular genius, I think, if I may praise myself of first on Valentine's Day, go out to dinner at nine o'clock. The restaurant will be emptier. Uh, the staff will be less stressed out. The Valentine's Day rush will be over. Get a 9.30 p.m. reservation. And uh, you'll have worked up an appetite f-ing, and then you can eat as much as you want. You don't have to worry about farting when you're f-ing, uh, <laughs> after you eat. And then you can go home and cuddle and watch television, which is much uh, much nicer than trying to go home and f-ing on a full stomach. And you can feel classy and sexy and European and eat at 9 o'clock instead of my mom and my sister who eat dinner at 4.30. Absolutely. Yeah, I just got back from a week in Italy where I couldn't, we were eating at nine o'clock. There's something to be said for it. Talking about your relationship with sex and food, what is your personal opinion on using food during sex, like chocolate syrup and honey or whatever? No, absolutely not. Forbidden, dumb, fake kink, pseudo adventurousness, um, and also messy and unpleasant. Uh, so much of what we Americans do is about turning everything ultimately into a dessert. Uh, you know, granola bars are now candy bars. Muffins are now cupcakes. Everything becomes dessert. Everything gets coated in sugar and jimmies and frosting. Can we just not do that to dick, too, and not do that to pussy, too? Can we have one thing that we do uh, where we're not making it about garbage calories? Uh, and it doesn't really work. You know, anybody who's ever put uh, whipped cream on somebody knows uh, that has, as sexy as that might look uh, in some dumb TV show. In reality, the person that you put the whipped cream on is going to smell like a baby threw up on them about a minute <laughs> later. And chocolate sauce ends up looking, it doesn't look nice. It ends up looking like you're both covered in <laughs> shit, uh, in the middle of it. So, the, so it may taste nice, but the optics are terrible and not sexy. Have sex and then go together and have some ice cream and chocolate sauce with some whipped cream on it. Don't mix those two things together. What is your favorite thing to eat after sex? Like, are you into hanging out in the bed and having a little snack? Um, My husband is very, very severe on the no food in the bedroom thing. So there is no hanging out in bed after and having a snack. There is a strolling down to the kitchen and having a snack. Cereal is always nice and restorative. Uh, Sometimes ice cream, sometimes fruit were those kinds of uh, I guess, Northwesty healthy types who keep a lot of fruit in the house. Sometimes we just cut up a pineapple and have that. And so you grew up uh, in the Midwest in like a big Catholic family, and that seems to kind of bring to mind casseroles and hot dish and stuff like that. And then now <laughs> you live in Seattle in a fruit house. So what is your relationship with food, and has it changed over the years? I do live in a fruit house in every every possible <laughs> understanding even, of the term. I didn't even realize that I said that. <laughs> what was the question? Oh my God, I accidentally told Dan Savage that he lives in a fruit house. A fruit house. We've all done it, right, guys? Since that was a very distracting question, I had to rephrase it again for Dan. So I asked him something that I've been asking every guest on the show since the podcast started, which is what was your relationship with food growing up? Oh, well, oh God, my mom didn't like to cook. It was also the 70s and inflation was a huge problem. I'm really going to date myself. 
And there wasn't a lot of food to eat. Like one of the sort of political crises of the 70s was how expensive food was getting, how expensive milk and meat were. Um, so I grew up at a time when, you know, a struggling working class family like mine was under a lot of food insecurity, as they would call it these days. So I grew up with real crazy food issues. Um, we didn't start to death and we didn't go hungry. And there were certainly people who were worse off than my family was. But, you know, my parents had four kids on a cop's salary. Uh, so we weren't rolling around in filet mignon or or a lot of fresh vegetables. Um, you know, we ate a lot of mac and cheese and pasta and Chef Boyardee and garbage. I had my relationship with food now is very different. It wasn't until I went away to college and started cooking for myself and then moved to Europe that I started eating things like Brussels sprouts and salad and <laughs> vegetables and squash. And I have a much more sort of varied and broad diet now as an adult than I, than I did as a child. And I really had to relearn how to eat and, and remake and reshape my tastes because growing up, it was all it was all bread and carbs. So I asked a friend uh, what she would ask you, and her question was about having Brian Brown over for dinner. Uh, and for people who don't know, he is the co-founder of the National Organization for Marriage. So somebody who is completely on the other side of the political spectrum for you. She said that she'd read that you completely regretted having him over for dinner. Yeah, that's a long story. You know, Brian Baum is the president of the National Organization for Marriage, rapidly anti-gay, homophobic, uh, anti-marriage equality group. And a few years back when, you know, we didn't know that our victory was coming and coming this quickly, uh, he challenged me to a debate and said I could name the time and place. And I knew what he wanted. He wanted me to fill a theater full of, uh, you know, the thousand angry, angry queer people who would boo and hiss. And then he could release the video and say, look who the really intolerant ones are. So I said, my house after dinner, uh, we could have a debate, not thinking he would take me up on it because he would lose that just on the optics, just on the, you know, look at our house, look at our family. We're not scary monsters. We're just a couple like other couples. Do I regret it? You know, the problem with that meal was I challenged Brian Brown. You know, I responded to his challenge by inviting to, him to my house for dinner, not expecting he would take me up on it. So it didn't even occur to me to tell Terry first. <laughs> so when he took me up on it, I had to go home and say, um, honey, guess who's coming to dinner? <laughs> what do you and, make for somebody who hates you? <laughs> well, uh, we had a neighbor cook, a neighbor volunteered to, to step in. And he made salmon and spring potatoes or something and, and uh, a corn salsa and a delicious dessert. Somebody else cooked for Brian. We told one of the like jokes when I made, you know, when I said my house after dinner was that we would have a straight neighbor prepare all the food so he didn't have to worry about uh, gay cooties on his lunch. I'm trying to think now what I would serve my enemy. Can I bring you in here? Yeah, for sure. Okay. I'm trying to think if I had my worst enemy coming to my house, what would I serve them? I was thinking this is such a like a waka waka waka, but I feel like I would have to serve them a knuckle sandwich. (laughs) What would you serve your enemy, producer Aaron? I would serve my enemy the best friggin thing that I could put together and just be like, look how baller. Yes. Get out. That'd be my move. Perfect. All right. So now it's time to get down to business. Dan is here to answer one question and one question only. So, of course, I asked Dan Savage what he would want for his last meal. And after a moment of intense personal reflection, Dan dug deep inside of himself into his entire history and life and answered. Uh, Terry's ass. <laughs> Can we right. say that on your podcast? Well, we've already um, said every other word, so why not? <laughs> no, I'm kidding. Um, 
it's funny, you know, when you think about the last meal, after saying I retrained myself, learned how to eat, I really learned how to enjoy other foods. When you think about, like, if I could eat something one last time, it would probably be my mother's pot roast, which was one of the only things that she enjoyed cooking, and was, and it was great. Um, she made this pot roast with onions and carrots and uh, potatoes, uh, and, and the meat was always delicious and stringy and salty and moist and just wonderful. And there was something about that pot roast, particularly like as a leftover a couple of days later, uh, heated up um, with the mashed potatoes and a glass of cold milk. That is probably what I would want my last meal to be. Since my mother's not here to prepare it, uh, and since Terry doesn't do a pot roast, and this is also kind of pathetic, a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, which is my comfort food. It's what I have to have when I'm really sad or not feeling well and can't leave the house. Some whole wheat bread with chunky peanut butter and jam, and I can, and I'm so happy. Again, with a glass of ice cold milk, makes me so happy. Do you do the natural peanut butter or like the Skippy Jif? No, natural peanut butter, not pudding. Did you grow up having peanut butter and jelly sandwiches in your lunch every day? Yes, but sugar bread, sugar peanut butter, sugar jelly, and Concord grape jelly, which now I can't eat. Now I find it revolting. When's the last time you've had your mom's pot roast? Uh. One of the last times I went to see my mom uh, in Chicago, uh, some years before she died, uh, whenever she knew I was coming, she would she would make pot roast and also run out and buy my favorite kind of Danish from one of the bakeries near our house where we grew up. My mom was very thoughtful. So coming back around to end with advice again, who do you go to if you need advice? <laughs> Depends about what. Legal advice? Uh, go to my lawyer. Sex advice? Uh, if I needed sex or relationship advice? You know, I have some really good friends. Uh, that are always there for me that I can chit chat with about uh, our issues. And most we do most of that advising each other now via text. So you can't pretend that they didn't tell you what to do six months ago. Yeah, keep a record. Yeah. Is there ever a question that you get that's too much for you that you're just like, ugh, I can't, I can't do this question. Like when <laughs> it's like too gross yeah, there, or there, too there, often or. There are some questions that are too gross. There are some questions you get every day. Like you could write an advice column that was nothing, but you should break up with that guy. You should break up with that guy. You should break up with that guy after every letter. Because so many people write in and say, oh, I love him and he's wonderful. And he set my cat on fire and he punched my mother in the face. And he's a heroin addict and he hasn't worked for six years and I support him. And he doesn't do any help around the house. Uh, what should I do? It's like, you should break up with that guy. And we know what you so call that column. It'd be your DTMFA column. Yeah, dump the motherfucker already. That's the acronym I came up with to to respond to those questions. But sometimes you get a too gross a question. The, the, the secret, you know, pulling back the curtain on the advice racket, is people will say to me, oh, you have all the answers. You know all the answers. And I always look at them and say, I only print the letters that I have the answers for, which makes me look like I have all the answers. But I get questions that I don't have the answer for. And I just don't print those. That's smart. <laughs> just ignore them. They never existed. <laughs> After this break, we're going to get to the bottom of what you could argue is America's favorite food, the peanut butter and jelly sandwich. You would be lying if you tried to tell me that you've never had a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Chances are you've been eating peanut butter and jelly sandwiches since you were a little kid. But where exactly did this iconic food come from? And how did it end up in the lunch boxes of every single kid in America? Well, I found a peanut butter expert who has answers to these questions and more. My name is Kathy Johnson. I'm Marketing Communications Associate with the National Peanut Board. Who knows more about peanut butter than the American Peanut Board? Well, maybe me. 
since I keep a jar of peanut butter at my desk and eat it by the spoonful at work, mostly when I'm bored. But Kathy still probably knows more than I do, history-wise. The history of peanut butter, it, um, of course, started uh, with George Washington Carver, who in the early 1900s was wanting farmers to have a rotation crop. And peanuts were a very good crop for rotation with cotton and other things. And, um, and so he was trying to develop a market for peanuts and peanut butter. And he developed a peanut paste that just never went went anywhere commercially. But in the 1800s, physicians, especially um, one kind of in St. Louis, started using like a peanut paste for, for his geriatric patients that had a hard time swallowing or had bad teeth. And also another physician, believe it or not, Dr. John Harvey Kellogg, the Kellogg cereal, Kellogg patented a process to manufacture peanut butter. And these were in the 1800s. And so they kind of got together with some other people and introduced peanut butter at uh, the St. Louis World Fair in 1904. And it had been been um, used locally and, and things like that, but it really took off at the World's Fair. So when they presented this at the World's Fair, was this in jars? Was this they were kind of trying to sell their product? Is that what it was? Well, they were introducing it as a novelty. They were serving it. They served it in little one ounce cups for like a penny because Kellogg had just patented probably about a decade before had patented um, this device to manufacture peanut butter. And so they could make it on more of a scale than just, you know, crushing the peanuts and, and adding a little oil to it. And in the 1920s, then you had like Skippy and Peter Pan sprung up with peanut butter because it was getting more and more popular and they learned how to manufacture it more on a large scale. So before being mass produced, how was peanut butter initially received? It was considered a delicacy. And so it was served in like upscale tea rooms in New York City. And it was an aristocratic dish. They had sandwiches, like one was peanut butter and pimento. Vanity Fair tea room, like peanut butter with watercrest or peanut butter on toast triangles. And so it was a very exclusive food. It wasn't for the masses. And so the original um, peanut butter sandwiches then were savory. They were, right. They were um, an aristocratic food. Okay, so I know you're probably thinking that it sounds gross to put watercress or pimento on a peanut butter sandwich. But if you think about it, natural peanut butter is savory. It is not a sweet food. We have just culturally branded it as a sweet sandwich. Is that true? Yeah. The natural peanut butter isn't so sweet? Yeah, there's just peanuts and salt. Do you know I hate peanut butter? I do know that, yes, because we've been working on this peanut butter episode, and I'm very angry with you. Yeah, as a child, I think I had one peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Wow. I'm sorry. Well, we as a culture have decided to make the peanut butter and jelly sandwich sweet because we add jelly or honey or slices of banana. But this could still totally be a savory sandwich. Shout out to the people who like the peanut butter and pickle sandwich. But let's talk about the sandwich we know today. Not peanut butter and watercress, peanut butter and jelly. The first recipe for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich appeared in this uh, book. It was called Boston Cooking School Magazine of Culinary Science and Domestic Economics. <laughs> Can't you see that, you know? Um, but she said to put like crab apple jelly with it, currant jelly. And she said um, the combination is delicious. And she thought it was original. And so this was in 1901. 
you know, you've got three components. You've got peanut butter, jelly, and then there's also bread, which kind of has a history to it that makes kind of the perfect storm of peanut butter and jelly sandwiches. So, of course, jelly has been around since the Middle Ages. I mean, um, around for a long time and was always done in homes. In like the early 1900s, about 1917, 1918, a man named Paul Welch got a patent for a machine that could puree grapes into jelly. And so you see kind of the patents and the inventions to make things on a larger scale playing into the popularity of these foods. They'd been around for a long time, but really never came together that much. And he started pureeing grapes and then developed this um, product. It was called Grapeolade, sort of like marmalade, but it was made from conquered grapes and advertised that. And so World War One, that was one of the rationed foods that was on the menu for, for foods to be rationed to soldiers in World War One. It became popular as a spread on bread, you know, just jelly. So jelly kind of got into the market and was very popular um, to buy grape jelly. So many of the foods we ate today actually came about because of the military. It's actually really interesting. I read a whole book about it and I learned that uh, cheese powder, the stuff that you find in your box of macaroni and cheese or that powdery cheese that coats a Cheeto, that was developed originally for soldiers in the military. But back to peanut butter and jelly. So we talked about peanut butter. We talked about jelly. All right, Kathy, what about the bread? Around this time, the early 1920s, 1927 or so, uh, a man invented a device that would pre-slice bread. He, in like 1928, uh, advertised it as the greatest step forward in baking since bread was wrapped. So pre-sliced bread really brought together peanut butter and jelly. With pre-sliced bread children could make sandwiches because they didn't have to use a sharp knife. So it just, and during the depression with low budgets, the need for food, children being able to make peanut butter and jelly. Peanut butter is a low cost protein um, and a meat substitute. It just became popular. So I've been curious, I mean, until recently now that all kids are like allergic to peanut butter, and I'm sure this is something that you guys struggle with on the National Peanut Board. But before all that, in my childhood in the 80s, everybody yep. brought a peanut butter and jelly sandwich to school. How did this become such a ubiquitous lunch uh, for kids? Why did this become the sandwich that you would take to school for lunch? Soldiers coming home from World War II, it was a popular good food during the war. During the 1940s, it was on the U.S. military ration menus peanut butter, and then they put jelly on it, and we had the pre-sliced bread, and it was um, it was portable for long walks and marches, you know, it was a high-protein alternative, and so they made it when they came home, and so peanut butter sales soared after World War II. It's in every lunchbox, kids can make it themselves, they can take it everywhere. Peanut butter and jelly just became a staple in American households. And I have found it's almost a uniquely American, kind of iconic comfort food <laughs> that is part of our culture. Um, you go overseas and, and you can find peanut butter on the shelves, but we have a statistic, 94% of our pantries have peanut butter in them. I think that peanut butter and jelly sandwiches might actually be one of the few truly, purely American foods out there. Because really, it's, it's hard to find an actual American food. Even foods that we think are American came from Europe or came from Asia and were adopted by immigrants who came over. 
But peanut butter was invented in America. Sliced bread was invent was sliced bread invented in America. Is that what we came to the conclusion of? Well, if not, we're claiming it 100% USA. But even though the peanut butter and jelly sandwich is a classic American food, we as a nation are harshly divided on how we enjoy a peanut butter and jelly sandwich, especially when it comes to the peanut butter itself. Right, Kathy? Yeah, women traditionally like creamy peanut butter and men traditionally like crunchy. Why is that? Why is that? I don't talk to men. Maybe it's that rough and <laughs> it's that crunch. That rugged peanut butter. What's the deal with the East versus West Coast? People living on the East Coast prefer creamy peanut butter, while people living on the West Coast tend to prefer crunchy. The Huffington Post did a survey a couple of years ago, and they found that um, 36% say strawberry jam is their favorite, but a close behind it is grape with 31%. Favorite bread is on white bread, peanut butter and jelly. We like our traditional white bread. Favorite type of peanut butter for a peanut butter and jelly sandwich is smooth. And most of us like crust left on the sandwich. Me too. We also found that the average American will have eaten 1,500 peanut butter and jelly sandwiches by the time they graduate from high school. (laughs) It's popular. Well, Dan Savage said that he wanted crunchy peanut butter on his sandwich. And Dan Savage is a boy. So these statistics are clearly very accurate. But here's the thing. We don't live in a black and white world. I like crunchy and creamy. I can't choose between the two. But others have very strong opinions on the texture of their peanut butter, or peanut paste as it was once called. After the break, we have a huge treat for you. Just in time for the presidential election, it is time for the great, 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 great peanut butter, butter, butter debate of 2016. Next on Your Last Meal. All right, so since this is the last episode of Your Last Meal before the presidential election, we're going to keep with the spirit of the political season. So I have asked two of my closest compatriots to participate in a full-on presidential-style debate over which style of peanut butter is truly better for America. Crunchy versus creamy. Let's tune in live to the debate. It's Your Last Meal Debate 2016. Peanut butter, crunchy or creamy? And now, tonight's moderator, Rachel Bell. Good evening from the Cairo Radio Studios. I'm Rachel Bell, host of Your Last Meal, and I welcome you to the first and final of the 2016 peanut butter debates between my boyfriend, BF, Tarek Abuzaid, and my best friend forever, BFF, Sean DeTore. The topic tonight is peanut butter, crunchy versus creamy. The debate will begin with opening statements from each side and will be followed by three questions. Each representative will have 15 seconds to answer the question I ask him, and the opposing side will then have the opportunity to respond. The audience here in the studio has promised to remain silent, no cheers, boos, or other interruptions, so we and you can focus on what each side has to say. Except right now, as we welcome my boyfriend, musician Mr. Abu Zaid, who will be representing Crunchy Peanut Butter, and my best friend forever, Cairo radio engineer Mr. DeTore, who is representing Creamy Peanut Butter. Thank you, gentlemen. Let's get right to it. Mr. DeTore, you won the coin toss, so we'll begin with your opening statement. You have 30 seconds. Thank you, Rachel. 
According to the National Peanut Board, every year Americans spend almost $800 million on peanut butter. Furthermore, the NPB states that a full 60% of Americans prefer creamy to chunky. This is no mistake. Creamy peanut butter is the mortar that will hold this great nation together and keep our home kitchens purring with this silky, smooth, easily spreadable sandwich option. <laughs> Very well done. That was really good. <laughs> Thank you, Mr. Dottori. Now, Mr. Abuzaid, your opening statement. You also have 30 seconds. I want to start by admitting openly that creamy peanut butter is favored by roughly 60% of Americans, so I know this is an uphill battle. But you know what else is popular in America? Ben Affleck, and he's objectively terrible. Can we perhaps draw the conclusion that Americans may be more susceptible to advertisement than they care to admit? In fact, the vast majority of peanut butter advertisements depict creamy peanut butter. Why? For the simple reason that it photographs better. Now, is this true? I don't know. But I'm the one talking and it fits my agenda and that's how debates work. What do we do with peanut butter? We spread it on toast with jelly. We enjoy it with apple slices and bananas. We put it in our smoothies, our cookies. All of these, I would argue, would benefit from added texture, an element provided by crunchy peanut butter that Creamy just can't compete with. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Abuzaid. Now, gentlemen, we'll be moving on to the question portion of the debate. You'll each have 15 seconds to answer the question, and then the opposing side will have 15 seconds to respond. For most Americans, the mention of peanut butter immediately conjures the same image, the classic peanut butter and jelly sandwich. Mr. Abuzaid, why is your style of peanut butter better for this ubiquitous dish? Uh, that's a good question, Rachel, and I would just say one word, texture. It's all about texture. If you're going to have a PB&J, the jelly's already going to be kind of gooey, the bread's going to be gooey. What do you need? You need some crunch. That's where the crunchy comes in. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Abuzaid. Now, Mr. Dottori, same question. You also have 15 seconds to respond. First of all, I've never heard of gooey bread, Mr. Abuzaid. It's Abuzaid. Wrong. Creamy peanut butter is much easier to spread on bread. You get to cover every portion of the chosen bread of your choosing. If I could move... Can I respond? Rachel, can I respond? No, if, time's if, up. If I could move past the peanut butter and jelly for one moment... Creamy Mr. Dottori, we need I would to like stay a on chance topic. To creamy respond. peanut butter... I would butter. like a chance to respond. All right, Mr. Abuzaid, please respond. I have nothing to say. I just wanted to interrupt. All right, we need to move on to our next topic, and that is diversity. This nation has always been a melting pot... We're built on the idea of diversity and accepting people's differences is integral to the fabric of our society. Let's say, gentlemen, you're at someone's house or at a social event and they only serve you your opponent's style of peanut butter. How would you react to this situation? Mr. Abuzaid, you go first. Look, we have a divided nation because of people like Sean. And believe me, he has tremendous hate in his heart. He's also a nasty woman. I believe in Wrong. acceptance and tolerance, but also in education. I would happily accept and enjoy my host's offer and then mail a care package with crunchy peanut butter and apples. Same question, Mr. Dettori. Thank you, Rachel. I would be gracious and accepting. If you can't accept your neighbor's peanut butter, you can't accept your neighbor, Mr. Abu Zayed. Abu Zayed. We are all neighbors across this nation and across the world. Wrong. However, I don't think so. If I can be transparent here for one moment, Mr. I don't think Abu you can. Zayed, you've never done it in your entire life, Sean. Mr. Abu Zayed, are you controlling this debate at Let's all? Let's wrap this up. All right, gentlemen. Our third question this evening is about teamwork. So I would like each of you to take thirty seconds as the final question to tell the American people something you enjoy or admire about your opponent's style of peanut butter. Mr. Dottori, it's your turn to go first. Thank you. Three words: brick and mortar. We need to build this country, this sandwich from the ground, nay, from the bottom slice up. 
I will tell you that I enjoy creamy peanut butter, but I will also tell you Mr. Abu Zayed has brought something very tantalizing and titillating to this table. Crunchy peanut butter does have a place in this world when you put it on that peanut butter and jelly sandwich and you chew that sandwich and then you make it creamy from your mastication of that chunky peanut butter. Remember, 60% of Americans can't be wrong. Creamy peanut butter is the only choice for your nutty, spreadable sack. <laughs> Let me do that again. <clears throat> what? Let me do that. That was a, that was a mistake. <laughs> Freudian slip, we call that. Nutty, what Spreadable sack. sack. <laughs> Hold on. <laughs> okay. Remember, 60% of Americans can't be wrong. Creamy peanut butter is the only choice for your nutty, spreadable snack. Better mouthfeel, easier to spread, easier to enjoy. Thank you, Mr. Dottori. Mr. Abu Zaid, something you admire about your opponent's style of peanut butter. First, I'd like to... I admire that it exists and uh, that through advertisements, it's found a way to be sold. But in uh, any other respect, I think it's inferior to crunchy peanut butter, which... If anybody tasted, would know it was better. Thank you very much. I want to thank you both for participating today. That brings us to the end of the peanut butter debate. Now, America, the decision is up to you. While millions have already chosen a side on this issue, change is just a choice away. One thing everyone here can agree on is we hope you will go to the kitchen and make yourself a peanut butter and jelly sandwich. It is one of the honors and obligations of living in this great country. Thank you and good night. I want to thank Dan Savage for being on the show today. Special thanks to Kathy Johnson from the American Peanut Board, my producer Aaron Mason, Sean DeTore, and Tarek Abuzaid for debating Crunchy versus Creamy today. Music, as always, by Prom Queen. And if you like the podcast, please go rate it on iTunes. That will really help us out. Give us a review. I'm Rachel Bell, and until next time, this is your last meal. 